0: Hello, and
1: welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and the unfair stereotype of a kid that I was, was the rule follower.
0: I'm Caitlin, and I was the unfortunately mean one, who was like, I'm not a dictionary,
2: don't <laughs> ask me how to spell words. So that was me.
3: I'm Cameron, and I was a total nerd, also goody two shoes.
2: Hi, I'm Tay. Um, I was definitely the shy reader kid. That's a good person to be.
1: (laughs) Breed's good writers, for sure. A big welcome to our special guest, Tay Keller, author of When You Trap a Tiger and The Science of Breakable Things. Tell us about your books, Tay.
2: Hi. So my first book, The Science of Breakable Things, is about a girl who's trying to use her 7th grade science project to save her mom from depression. And then my second book, When You Trap a Tiger, is about a girl named Lily who has always grown up hearing Korean folktales, and she's always thought they're just stories until one of the tigers from the folktales visits her, and
0: she realizes that there's a lot more going on than she thought. My daughter just started reading The Science of Breakable Things, and she loves it. So,
2: Oh, that's awesome. Thanks. That's so nice to hear.
1: And this is great because today we want to discuss what makes an authentic kid voice. And we have the master here. So, Tay, we're going to be picking your brain full throttle tonight. What is an authentic kid voice?
2: What makes it authentic? So, I think that what makes a kid voice authentic is what makes any character's voice authentic. You have to do the same kind of character building and research. So, you figure out what their backstory is, what their experience is, how that colors how they see the world. And then also figuring out what context they have. So literally what words they know, what references they have, because that's going to affect how they talk, how they communicate to their peers or to their parents or anything. So really, I guess it's it's just an authentic character in general, which is maybe not the best answer, but it's just like building any character, I think. Yeah, what do you guys think? Well, I feel like...
0: Authentic kid vote. I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. A lot of the differences are just like a slightly less nuanced view of the world, perhaps. I mean, even a lot of kids have nuanced and specific views of the world, too, but it's just maybe not quite as developed or they don't have as much context for what's going on, so there's a whole lot more discovery that's going on. But at the same time, kids all have, like, the same things adults do. They have, like, the thing they're excited about or, like, the person they're secretly in love with or, I mean, maybe not quite so much in middle grade. But seventh graders totally have that, right? (laughs) Like, they they like to read books and like to reference movies and make jokes to their friends. So, like, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference other than they think different sorts of things are funny and and maybe thinks the world is a little bit more black and white than it is or I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, this is a cop-out, but I think what can make a kid voice unauthentic is if it falls into one of those unfair stereotypes we labeled ourselves mm-hmm. as at the beginning <laughs> <Yes. laughs> because <laughs> it's much harder to fake a kid voice in my mind than pretty much any other voice because everyone has experience being a kid. So we know that the world is not simplistic. We know the world is The world is complicated even from a young age. And so, what makes a kid voice authentic to me is kind of like what Caitlin said. It's just that their worldview, they maybe say things a little
0: simpler than we do. I'm still a kid, so I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) say I'm not a part of your we. Just kidding. (laughs) I think the one thing that The, like, trap that people fall into with kid voices. We don't do a whole lot of middle grade. Most of us write YA. I have written some middle grade, but I'm still, like, on the edges of it. And it's all fantasy. And middle grade fantasy is different than contemporary middle grade, for sure. So, I feel like one trap that contemporary middle grade falls into that I've read is trying to pull punches and make things, like, less serious or less, like, to make their, their worlds more simple than, than a kid's really is which is something I love about Tay's books.
2: Oh, yeah. Or to pull back on the emotions, like you're saying, pulling punches. The, the mistake of thinking that because they might not know as much or have as much context, that they're not feeling as much. But kids feel things so Oh, my gosh. Deeply. Kids feel
0: some things, like, so much more than I do. I have a 9-year-old who feels things so loudly so often. It's an unrestricted kind of emotion, too, where they haven't learned to, like, filter themselves as much, too. So they might not understand exactly where it's coming from or what's going on, but like the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings and the discomfort with the world is there.
1: Mm -hmm. With that in mind, what is or isn't off limits when writing a kid voice?
2: Oh, I struggle with this a lot. I think just as a writer, when you're working on a middle grade story, the easiest thing to do is to not worry about that question for the first few drafts, because Otherwise, you're gonna be pulling punches, you're gonna be holding yourself back. So for the first few drafts, just write. And then from that point, you can start thinking about that. And I always think that kids know very well what their own limits are. Whenever I visit a school and I talk to kids, they're very clear on what they're willing to read about and what they're not willing to read about. And all of the kids have different senses of that boundary. So I think you can open the door in the books for certain bigger topics but kind of giving the kid the agency to walk through that door. So I guess, for example, with When You Trap a Tiger, the book has a lot to do with Korean folklore and also Korean history. And part of that is I make a very brief mention to the Korean history of the Japanese occupation, and part of that was the comfort women. So the Japanese soldiers taking Korean women prisoner and using them during the war and that is a very heavy topic and I think that's something that is it's definitely considered like off-limits for middle grade but I make that very brief mention because I think that a kid reader can see that and if they want to explore that on their own they can go to a parent or a teacher and they can ask them about it and they they have the agency to then engage with that topic and if they don't want to then that's fine that's fine for them too And I think that's
0: really important for the authenticity of the voice because, I mean, any kid who starts learning about, like if it's a Korean kid who's learning about their own backstory or their own ancestry, that's something that might come up. So there's a book that I really liked that is middle grade that is written from the perspective of a girl who has Asperger's. It's called Rain Rain, R-A-I-N-R-E. I-G-N. It's homonyms. And that's one of the things the character does in the book in order to cope with stressful situations. She comes up with homonyms to put on her list of words that have homonyms. And I don't know actually how the kid community feels about this book. I don't know the history of the author and what their connection to Asperger's is. She, the character herself, thinks quite differently than I do at least, even though in my family we have maybe a, a touch of ASD. So maybe I'm farther in that direction than some people are. But It doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't try to change the voice into something that people would have an easier time identifying with, I guess. That's another book that goes very, very close to like child abuse too, where you don't put child abuse on the page in a middle grade book. Like, I don't think I've ever read a book that is middle grade that has somebody hitting a kid, where it, unless the kid had the capacity to fight back, like with magic or something. That's where we get into the contemporary versus fantasy. There's a lot more violence and danger in a fantasy book, because usually the children involved are able to address it. They're able to fight back. But in contemporary, a lot of times, children don't have tools to fight back against an adult. And then, actually, if you've ever read the book A Single Shard, which... I forget the name of the author. That's horrible. We'll put it in the notes. But that one, the main character, the point of what the character is doing is taking these pots to be evaluated by the emperor, I think, where um, the pots are crushed. And that's like his job. Like that's everything to him is getting these pots to the emperor. And there's a moment where he goes up on top of this rock and older readers know that what he's thinking is, should I jump off of this rock? But younger readers do not know that necessarily because it's nuanced enough that an older reader could pick up on it and a younger reader wouldn't.
2: So what do you think about that? So I I think it's that same idea of building layers into the book. So if a kid is reading that and they know that they're not willing to engage with that idea of, you know, the, the jumping off the cliff, then I think consciously or subconsciously often, they will just not even see that layer And that's okay. And then they'll come back maybe in a few years. And if they reread the book, they might have a totally different experience of that. But I think also, there is definitely an argument that I think it's important to have these kind of content warnings in books, because, you know, it's it's helpful to have a librarian or a teacher who can tell the kid, this kind of thing is in this book. So maybe you do or don't want to read it. But not every kid has access to that. So I think it would be really helpful for kids to have that in books. I
0: agree. I wish YA had them too, because there's such a span in ages and like capacity to consume content. And YA, like there's some really dark pushing boundaries into adults' content in YA, which I mean, some people are ready to read that. And then there are like 14 year olds who are first starting to read, read YA who might not be ready for that. So I wish that more content warnings were on books. <laughs> yeah. So
1: maybe this is a good place to ask the question then.
2: What do, what responsibility is writers? we have for kids. Do we have a responsibility towards the kids we're writing for? So I didn't think about this at all when I wrote The Science of Breakable Things because I didn't ever expect to publish that book. But with When You Trap a Tiger, I got really paralyzed by that question because before I even started writing, I was doing these school visits and I was talking to these kids and I was like, oh no, I didn't realize that I maybe had to deliver a message or be some kind of role model. I was very stressed out about that. But I think what I kind of came to when I was writing When You Trap a Tiger is that I feel like the biggest responsibility that I have when I'm writing for kids is just to be honest with them and to treat them with respect as readers because I, we talked about this before like, kids know if the voice is inauthentic, and in the same way, they know. If an adult is sitting them down and pointing their finger and saying, you know, you better learn this and they'll just totally resist that. But I think my job is just to tell them, I see you. The experience that you're having is valid and it's OK. It's OK to feel the things that you're feeling and you're going to be you're, you're going to be all right.
0: I was just thinking that the the biggest responsibility, I mean, it goes along just with what you're saying, is just to be real and to not be trying to write something that twists people into specific shapes, I guess. I mean, when I was growing up, most of the books I read I felt like were things that I was not interested in because they had nothing to do with me because they were all about boys with dogs that died. And (laughs) that for me was – I ended up reading books that were for older kids, I guess, is what happened. But, like, that idea in middle grade is just being able to find, like – something that matters to them and to not be stuck in like one in the the boy with his dog realm which we aren't anymore there are tons of great middle grade books that cover all sorts of different kinds of kids
2: do you guys feel that when you write YA is there that same pressure to kind of have responsibility to the readers or do you have more space since they're teenagers
1: I definitely think there's more space because they can maybe have a better idea for themselves of how the world really is. So if you mess up, at least you're not going to mess them up. They can choose to believe you or not. But I will say, I feel like there definitely is that responsibility when dealing with specific issues, when present- presenting things like mental illness or a divorce. And that's why it's so important to get a sensitivity reader so they can tell you if you're putting these issues across the page in an accurate way that will empower readers, will help them know what battles they're going to face in their life or what battles other people are going to face. So that's something that comes to mind for me
0: or at least a healthy way. That's something I've really struggled with. I mean, my first book came out in 2017, which was like the year of publishing blowing up. And it made me think a whole lot about the words I was using and the things that I was teaching people, whether it was on purpose or not, because people, the people who read books internalize the language that you use and the ideas that you're putting across. And if you do it in an irresponsible way, like, I mean, there was a big push in 2017 against like ableist language, for example, like not using the word crazy or the word psychotic or in in a way that can be offensive to someone who actually suffers from psychosis. And as... Somebody who is is giving content to a large group of people, like I, I feel like everybody should probably be aware of those issues and try to not reinforce stereotypes and and bad things in the way that we speak. But as an author, if you're re- reinforcing those stereotypes, then you are enabling other people to say, "Well, she did it, so it must be okay." And so I I think about that a lot when I'm writing.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I remember that conversation about the word "crazy" specifically, and I did go through the manuscripts for Science and Breakable Things, and I took out any reference, which was, I felt so grateful that we were having that conversation right then because, I mean, I was writing a book about mental health, and I this stuff had slipped into my book, and so I these conversations are so important, and they're so helpful to listen to as an author. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: There are lots of things that you can
2: reinforce, like um,
0: unhealthy relationships, or like, I don't know, there's all sorts of damage you can do. And so you need to be careful.
1: Being an author is a powerful position. So take it from <laughs> <now>. <laughs> okay, we're about out of time for this portion of the podcast, but does anyone have any final thoughts they'd like to share? I will put in a plug for alpha and beta readers right here because they're important for any manuscript you're working on, but especially for middle grade novels. Um, if you have a kid narrator, the best readers to check for if you're being condescending or if your main character is too naive for a kid. Um, the best people to check for that are going to be kids. So that's my final plug there. We'll move on to the second portion of our podcast where we critique an audience submission. So a quick review, we try to be non-prescriptive. And if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. A summary of this week's submission: A wrestler-obsessed girl upsets her social worker by sticking Oreos to a man's face as they leave her mother to live at her grandparents' house. So, what are some things we liked in this submission?
2: I really like the voice.
3: the The whole Oreos thing is hilarious. Just... Yeah, <laughs>
0: that first line. <laughs> so good. I'm gonna read the first line. It's it's the average human face can hold about nine and a half Oreos. An above-average one can hold 11. The guy sleeping next to me on the plane has 13 plastered across his face, and there's still room for more. Yeah. So yeah, this is
1: a fantastic chapter be- to be reading right after we talked about authentic kid voice. I definitely felt that coming across here.
0: I did too. I really loved a lot of lines. Like there was one about the Oreos, as she's like sticking them to his face, tasting like old gym bag, because yeah, that's where she was keeping the Oreos. And just, there's so many lovely lines. I think the voice, like we said, is my favorite part about this.
3: It's like a fantastic low stakes train crash that you're just watching happening on the page. You know this can't end well, but you really want to see how it ends.
0: I don't know. If someone was sticking Oreos to my face, that is not low stakes.
3: There would be It's lower like... stakes than a train crash.
0: That's true. That's true. <laughs> Well, and one thing this chapter does well is it makes it not
1: low stakes for Olivia, right? Like Absolutely. we, as the as the reader, we know she's not going to die. She's not going to get maimed. Nothing terrible is going to happen. This is this is about her relationship with her mom, and if she can beat this record, then
2: mm-hmm.
1: she'll have gotten something from the from the trip. She'll have made her mom proud. So there's so much emotional charge behind just these Oreos, which I love.
0: That's something else that I really liked as I was reading. We have. Like this really fun voice and a kid who's obviously acting out a lot, but we get kind of the frame for the situation, which I really liked that coming out in the background.
1: There are some fun wrestling references um, scattered throughout the chapter, and I thought those said a lot about
0: Olivia. I liked them too. Actually, I had to Google the first couple, and I was like, who, what, what is this? And then I caught on. <laughs> so there you go.
1: Okay, that might be a good transition then. What are some things that might need a second look in this chapter?
0: About those wrestling references, <laughs> I think this is kind of prescriptive. I liked them. I thought they were so funny. I think that there was maybe a little bit too much. Like, there, at, at some point, I was like, every other line, there's another wrestler, a new one. As a, as a person who doesn't have experience with any of that, I didn't understand what was going on, and I would have loved like just a hair more context so that I didn't have to go Google.
2: Yeah, just a reference yeah, that yeah, it okay. it is wrestling. Then the rest is fine. I, I liked how it gave context, like we were saying, to who this kid is and what she cares about. But yeah, I also, it took me a little while to figure out that it was wrestling.
1: This is a reader response to the whole cookie thing. I thought it was really a fun thing that Olivia was doing. But then I stopped and thought about the legality of of her doing it, especially because her mom plays the game with her and they go out of their way, they sit on subways and they just, they lick these Oreos and they stick them on sleeping people's faces. And that's like putting your saliva on someone's face, which is really bad, especially in a city, you know, germs travel so fast. And so um, it was funny and quirky for the kid, but it really made me doubt. This mom? But yeah. if that's what it was supposed to be, then I could see it's, that happening it's, too.
3: Because... It's definitely 100% assault. But in, yeah. in my mind, <laughs> I, 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 I ran with it because I figured, yeah, see, here's the, the somewhat subtly not really indicated reason why maybe this kid was taken from her mom. Because they do things like go on the subway and at least under a legal definition assault people.
1: Right, yeah. Well, I thought her mom was dying, too.
3: Well, she says she's sick, right? Does it ever say?
2: It doesn't say what it is. What were you going to say, Tay? I had that moment where I hesitated, too, where I was like, would a mom really do this? But then when they're talking about the social worker and she has to leave her mom, it kind of was like, okay, maybe her mom is not deemed a fit caretaker, and this is part of the reason, like you were saying.
3: I Mm -hmm. feel like the doctor might be psychiatric, psychiatric, not something
1: else okay i hadn't thought that that's interesting yeah i could totally see that
0: i wondered why no well actually during those paragraphs i had like a moment where i like just didn't believe it where i was like are they really sticky like i just blocking wise i was like what is she doing and then there was another paragraph and i was like is she? St- Sticking Oreos to someone's face? And then I was like, she is sticking Oreos to someone's face. So I I had just a little bit of, like, the first probably two paragraphs. Where I was like, what is going on? Like, this is funny, but I'm not quite sure what is actually happening.
3: I think I think there's a few word choices that maybe could stand to be a little precise. Like, in the first one, like, it says a face can hold about nine and a half Oreos. My initial assumption was, like, in mouth. your mouth. So it's yeah. just saying holding. That made me think within. Obviously, when we get to plastered across his face, okay, now I knew what we were talking about. You
0: got it faster than I did. I was like, wait a second. (laughs) What's going on here? I was wondering why no one tried stopping them. Like, are they alone in the car? Like, are people looking? I've never lived in a really huge city before. I mean, I have, but not where somebody was sticking Oreos on someone's face. Like, is that something that people would ignore on the subway? Does anybody have experience New
2: York? New York is a weird place.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I I do believe the stereotype is that New Yorkers will ignore anything.
1: Um, this is another reader response note, so I'll just tell you my reaction and then what it made me think. And if that's what this author was going for, then great. So Olivia keeps saying that the social worker's kindness is a mask. And because she's the narrator, I was inclined to trust her. And so she keeps saying that, you know, the the social worker is just really an, a bad woman, but she's pretending to be nice. But then the social worker is actually really nice with her, and really patient. So it made me feel that uh, Olivia was kind of an unreliable narrator and I was more on the social worker's side than hers anymore. I mean
3: the social worker does imply she wants to kill the child
0: that yeah. seems like a little bit of
1: a <laughs> but it almost seems like something something Olivia would enjoy right like she she would like the threat sure, but I, I feel like
3: death. while it might not be unrealistic for that to happen in, real, in the real world I do feel like it would be frowned upon in most social worker associations <laughs> this is <laughs>
2: true true <laughs> I think uh, about that social worker versus kid. I think that we probably read it and think, like, feel the sympathy for the social worker. Like, oh my God, her job sounds so hard. She's (laughs) just trying to help. But I think a kid reader would probably, you know, side with the kid and be like, oh yeah, you know, the social worker is getting in the way of her very important Oreo task. So I think that's maybe like a, kid adult reader difference.
0: Good point. Good point. It's true. I came out of it thinking as like the adult side of it thinking she was unreliable and that that's probably how she would feel about it because she just got taken away from her mother. So regardless, she's not going to feel really happy about this woman with violently orange fingernails.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, the social worker is the villain who took her away from her mom, which is huge. Mm -hmm. So there is a moment where like it
0: starts out with the guy leaving or it doesn't start out there's a moment where this man she's been putting oreos on his face gets angry and leaves and i don't know why but um (laughs) and she's like no i need witnesses so this social worker won't murder me and it seemed pretty consistent with the rest of the voice because she's been very overblown and melodramatic and fun and silly it's the voice but then a little bit later There's a more like human moment where the social worker says, my affirmations are so I don't kill anyone. And she smiles at Olivia so that she knows that she's joking. And up to that point, I didn't really think of Olivia as like being super rational, where she'd be able to pick that up and be like, oh, she's joking. Or like even that she would take her seriously. And so it seems like a voice blip to me. What did you guys think? That's really picky. But what did you think?
1: I think I agree. I think I read that uh, section as just a like I was still confused about who the social worker was. So that made me more confused about who she was, but I could see it um, being confusing for Olivia as well.
0: Yeah. Anything else we want to talk about with this? Just another line
1: that I loved. I think it's when the social worker says, when uh, Olivia asks, well, why can not I go stay with this friend or whatever and do my own things there? And the social worker says, well, surprisingly, we didn't think that a woman named Lady Bone Crusher would be a good guardian. (laughs) I just thought that was kind of snappy and fun. I like that one, too.
2: I think, so this is a little bit nitpicky, maybe, but uh, the last line kind of stood out to me in something that could be a little bit stronger, just because you're always trying to leave a kind of hook at the end, especially for the first chapter, and you're, you you want to leave that question in your reader's mind that's either like this bizarre mystery that the reader wants to know what's going on, or it's a very specific next step kind of goal for the character. And she does have this goal, she says, like, the next chance I have, I'm going to get out of here. But I felt like that could be just a little more specific, so that the reader can kind of start to envision what that might look like, and wonder if she's going to be able to pull it off, and kind of it, it propels them into turning the page to the next chapter.
1: Okay, well then to this author, thank you so much for submitting. We loved reading your work. And Tay, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so good to hear from you. Thank you for having me. This was very fun. To our audience, make sure you check out her books, When You Trap a Tiger, and The Science of Breakable Things. A huge thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens, for everything she does, and also to Matt Harris for help with sound design. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome or whine about how your writing is going. You can find us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram as at LitService Podcast, or you can email us at LitServicePodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and share the podcast. It helps people to find the show. For lit Service, thanks for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.